Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we speak with Steve Hoffman, venture investor, serial entrepreneur, and award-winning author. He is chairman and CEO of San Francisco-based startup accelerator, Founderspace, which was ranked the number one incubator for overseas startups by Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazines. We kick off the episode by asking Steve to recount what it was like launching Founderspace in China, given the fact that it was actual physical space and the hurdles and advantages he encountered. We also discuss the differences between mentoring Chinese and Western founders and how the evolving family dynamics in China with regards to their youth have influenced China's meteoric rise to become a leader in tech innovation. We also talk about what foreign founders should consider when looking to enter China, as well as what Chinese founders should consider when looking abroad. We also discuss Steve's books, diving into his most recent release, The Five Forces That Change Everything, and end with Steve's thoughts on whether China will win the battle for AI supremacy. Enjoy. And it's not just about your relationship to one person in China, the person you're doing business with, but it's your relationship to all the other people in that person's network. So are you connected with their family? Are you connected with their colleagues in business? Are you connected with the government that they do business with? If you have all these relationships in common, then you can usually work out anything. If you don't, if you're an isolated person, there's not much cost for them to just back out of a deal or totally change it. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Fantastic to be here. Awesome. As we usually do, I would love to know a little bit about you and where in the world did China come from? How did it enter your life? How did it become a part of your life? And what kind of place in your heart and in your mind and in your work does it currently occupy? Well, I'll start with the place in my heart, mind and work. It occupies a large place because I have spent a lot of time in China over the past seven years. Now, how it all began was an accident. I never anticipated doing business in China. I was running Founderspace, which is a startup incubator and accelerator located in San Francisco. And we were thriving. This was over 10 years ago. And we started to get a reputation as the bridge between Silicon Valley and the rest of the world. And so we focused specifically on helping foreign entrepreneurs come into Silicon Valley and land there, connect with everybody. And our programs were different from like Y Combinator and 500 startups because a lot of the foreigners we were working with, they didn't want to spend three to six months in Silicon Valley and then have a demo day. They, they wanted to move much faster primarily because they wanted to figure out if the market was a right fit for them. And they wanted to 
they wanted to be exposed to as much as possible as soon as possible, because a lot of times they were on a limited schedule. They, their, their families and teams were back home. They had limited finances, all these things they needed it the accelerator accelerated. So we started cramming like three months worth of material into two to four week programs, really intensive programs. They ran really well. Our reputation spread. And then we started having foreign governments uh, and foreign companies from all over the world landing at founder space, you know, bringing in lots of people to figure out, you know, see our companies, see the innovation that was happening, make all these connections. And I got an invitation amongst other places to go to China, to go to Beijing. So I thought, wow, I had never been to China, never studied Chinese, knew absolutely almost nothing about the country. I got invited and I said, sure, I want to go. So I went there. It was an incredible trip. You know, they wine and dine you and everybody's so nice. I gave a couple talks at, at conferences that they had set up and then I went back and I thought that's the end of China. Well, it was a really amazing experience. Um, but I more people heard about me uh, from that trip and just from the reputation of founder space. And I started to get more and more invitations. So I said, okay, I'll go back. And I went back, did it again. And I noticed this was just at the time when China was really putting their, their foot on the gas to pump up their whole tech industry. And the government had made an initiative to fund accelerators. It was about seven years ago, maybe eight years ago. I forget. It's been a while. And they were just, everybody was all hyped up. Excel incubators and accelerators were beginning to really launch in China. The government was putting a lot of money behind it. All the cities were getting behind it. And I, everybody started to come to me because I just happened to be there. And they knew a founder space and asked me, can you set up founder space in my city? Well, I was totally overwhelmed, but um, I said, I'll think about it. And I saw the opportunity. I said, wow, if I can, China is a huge market. The tech industry is, you know, big now and it's going to get much bigger in the next, you know, seven years. I should invest in this. So I did. And I just kept going back to China over and over and over. And then we started launching our incubators and everything took off from there. Speaking of those those incubators, founder space, there's a lot that I would actually like to ask about that. I don't even know if I have enough time because I have developed uh, a little bit of, of workspace for, for tech uh, in China in a couple of different cities. I know that um, not everything is always straightforward. There is intricacies, we shall call them, in getting Internet hooked up in being able to operate and keep doors open and keep security off you. And there's there's just a lot of nuances that go into it. And I'm, I'm curious how close you were to it and anything that you would like to describe or tell the audience about what it's like to launch a physical space in China. And then let's talk about the space that is founder space there in China and how you were able to to build and grow and really make founder space as popular as it is today. Well, let me tell you, it's it's an interesting story, because when I went to China, I kept going back. I kept getting invited and all these people came up to me 
and I didn't know who they were. And you know, Chinese entrepreneurs, people want to do a deal. And if they want to do a deal with you and they think they can make some money, they want to do it tomorrow. Let's let's sign an, an agreement. Let's have an opening ceremony, a signing ceremony, blah, 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 blah. So all of them, I said no, because they all wanted to be my exclusive partner for China. And I didn't really know who they were. I didn't know if I could trust them. I didn't know the system, how anything worked. I didn't even speak Chinese. So I said, I turned to the people I liked and I said, let's do something small together. And so this was my strategy for entering the market. It was like, let's do a small thing. Let's do an event together. Let's do a startup program where we train entrepreneurs together for two weeks. And then I would get to know them. And through that process, I gradually got to know different people and how the system worked and how the government worked. And after, you know, a couple months of doing this, I decided I would partner with the government in Shanghai, uh, Jing, and I don't pronounce it right, but it's a big tech park in Shanghai. I think it's the second largest, and we would open a founder space there. So we did that. Uh, it went really smoothly. It was great. And then, then after that point, everything absolutely exploded. So I, I was opening that up. I had written my uh, first book, Make Elephants Fly, uh, which is all about the process of radical innovation. And I launched it in the US with Hachette as a publisher. And I signed a deal on my own for the China market with Citic, one of their large publishers. And um, we the book came out. I was also doing speaking tours and my incubators were launching all simultaneously. And I happened to be invited by Tencent to give a talk in Shenzhen. Um, and I just thought it was another talk like all the other ones I'd been giving, but they were filming it. And two weeks later, you know, I'm walking down the street in Shanghai and I'm meeting different people and that I do business with. And they said, do you know, you're really famous in China. And I thought they were joking. I thought they were pulling my leg. <laughs> I was like, this is a joke. Um, but it turned out that thing was broadcast across all of China. And I don't know how many people saw it, but it was a lot because that combined with my book, combined with the incubator opening, uh, all these doors swung open. And then we it was just uh, it was really fun. It was a wild ride for the next five years. Uh, I was spending anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of my time in and out of China. Uh, doing business there. We ended up opening incubators in Beijing, another one near Shenzhen, Dongguan, Nanjing, Hanzhou, Wuhan, uh, Xi'an, uh, different locations around China. Some of them we later, the deals expired and we didn't renew them because financial terms weren't what we wanted, especially the earlier ones. But we formed a lot of great relationships there. And it's been a really amazing experience. I want to take a quick sec to talk about the book you mentioned, Make Elephants Fly. Can you give us a little insights, a little inside baseball on what you were attempting to achieve and what you were attempting to teach amongst the entertainment uh, within about the book? And then can you maybe take those learnings and teachings and apply that to the differences between what that would look like in the U.S. and China? Sure. So Make Elephants Fly is all about innovation. So it's how do startups innovate and how can these processes be applied if you're an entrepreneur? And the elephant, by the way, is your big idea. So it's your big idea. You want to get it off the ground, but making an elephant fly seems impossible. 
So how do you do it? What are the steps you do to get that idea off the ground? So for entre- other entrepreneurs, they would read it, became really popular in the startup culture in the China and other countries. And uh, people uh, basically took you step-by-step through everything you would do in the innovation process. But I also, in the book, applied how large corporations, corporate executives would use the same strategies that startups do, but in a larger organization with the challenges they have. And I will tell you, um, some of the concepts in that book, I mean, the book, there's a lot in there. (laughs) It's, It's packed. But The core concepts were around starting small, you know, not so a lot of people will throw a lot of money at innovation. A lot of corporations like the CEO will say everybody in our company is an innovator. Those all sound great, but they almost always fail. So the really, you know, the reason startups work so well is because by their very nature, they are limited. They are limited in size. They only have so many founders. They are limited in money. So they have to use their resources very cleverly and forcing them to innovate. And they are limited in time. So they have to iterate really, really fast. And this is something that like a big corporation doesn't have those limitations. So a lot of times they'll throw a ton of money, put a ton of time, uh, you know, put big teams on it and it will go nowhere. Whereas a little startup with the opposite, you think it would be at a disadvantage is actually at an advantage. And um, in China, a lot of people would ask me, and I got asked this question probably a thousand times, you know, what's the difference between Chinese entrepreneurs and how they innovate and U.S. entrepreneurs and how they innovate? And I will tell you, it's very dangerous to generalize about anything. And first of all, a lot of people think China isn't innovative. That's simply not true. And we're seeing it now. China is extremely innovative. People innovate anywhere. But people were under this false impression because China copied a lot of ideas from the West. Well, why did they do that? Well, because copying is really smart. Like if somebody's figured something out and you have an entirely different market you can bring it to, but you know that works in another market, why wouldn't you copy Like that's the best way to get going. But what people failed to realize is that they copied and then innovated. So like WeChat is, or QQ, they're all, they're copies of the original, you know, chats that were out there, ICQ that was out there from Israel. They were copies, but they went way beyond the original instant messengers that they were copying. And you can see WeChat just like, it's an amazing application, what they did and how simple they kept it for how robust it is. I mean, we use Facebook Messenger and things like that. And I still prefer WeChat. Um, And then you look at all these, you know, other copies like Alibaba, you know, originally they tried to copy, uh, you know, all sorts of different players. One of them was eBay. You know, Jack Ma was going through all these different business models until he found out what actually worked in China. And, you know, the rest is history. So the Chinese are very innovative, but there are some differences. Now, one of the differences is that uh, in China, uh, people... It's a very communal culture. So people tend to look at the people around them for direction. In the West, we're a little, you know, every culture is communal, but we're more individualistic. So a lot of people would say, you know, I'm going to try this idea, even though everybody thinks it's crazy. I'm just going to do it because I'm passionate about it. And I'm going to go out there and I don't care what anybody says. I'm going to go my own way. And most of those ideas fail, but a few of them break through. And when they break through, they're huge. In China, People tend to be a little more practical. They look around them to see what's working, and then they try something, a variation on that that's already working, because that's how 
the society and the culture works. China is also more hierarchical uh, so that in the U.S., a lot of people will push back. Like, you know, in a company, they'll say, no, I don't agree with their boss. I think we should do it a different way and blah, 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 blah. In China, you're not, it's changing, especially with the younger generation, but really you're not supposed to, you're supposed to listen to your boss. And if your boss says something, you're supposed to do it and you're not supposed to push back too much or you have to be very careful how you do it. So uh, that tends to shape how innovation happens in China you know, a lot of it in the U.S. happens from the bottom up. A lot of it in China, people have to break off and then go do innovation, or it has to be a core initiative within the company. So um, people think different ways. Chinese are really good at executing and scaling because it's hierarchical society and they can all just, and they're very work focused. As you know, Chinese work like crazy hours, nine, nine, six. It's actually higher than that. It's, you know, nine to nine, six days a week. But most of the Chinese I talk to, especially in cities like Beijing, like they're working seven days a week and they won't get home till 10 or 11 at night. And it's just, you know, by American standards, it's insane, but they do that. But that gives them an advantage in some ways. And it's a disadvantage in other ways. So in American, well, people will innovate and take more time uh, for experimentation. They'll take weekends off and some of their best ideas will come when they're like kayaking or doing something else. In China, people are just work, 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 you know, in an extremely competitive environment. Um, it influences innovation, but innovation can happen in either of these. There isn't like one system that you have to have for innovation. There are many different ways you can do it. And I discuss that in the book. I wanted to talk about what it's like to mentor Chinese entrepreneurs and then contrast and compare that with Western entrepreneurs. But I, I think even further is talking about what do each already bring to the table and what do they potentially need help with. And and so I'd like to have a bit of a discussion because really with the spaces and accelerators and incubators, they're really designed to try to amplify and augment and help entrepreneurs and founders and their companies be successful. What do you find is the biggest differences, the attributes, and then where they need some help between Chinese entrepreneurs and Western entrepreneurs? Well, it's very interesting. When I go to China and I've run many, many programs in China with Chinese entrepreneurs, uh, training them, going over their business plans, doing pitch de demo days, pitch days, all the different things they need, you know, personally advising their companies. And they're really receptive. Chinese entrepreneurs, they want to succeed. They are open to ideas and they're really open because I'm a foreigner coming in. Uh, they really are open to what our perspective, like from Silicon Valley. So I'm not going to give them the same advice that a local Chinese mentor or, you know, innovation instructor would give them. I would, I give them advice from my culture, from my background. And then, you know, like when we run our incubators, you were asking about this. I have foreign partners. That's how I run those incubators. So I don't have to figure out like all the logistics, everything else, like, you know, how to pay the rent, how to pay the employees, how to keep the lights on, how to deal with security and, you know, all these different things, how to keep the government officials happy. If I had to do that, I would fail. 
Like I would not have been able to run my incubators there. I have foreign partners in each city that are local to each city who have relationships with all the local mentors, all the local business people, of course, the government and everybody else. And they kind of manage that. So when I come in, it's usually part of a larger program where they are interfacing with these entrepreneurs and giving them all the local insiders. Like if they, the, the entrepreneur needs an introduction to a, a certain party official, you know, or director of technology in the government, or they need to get something, the, the people on the ground in our incubator, my Chinese partners are tend to be very well connected and they handle all that. So I don't do that for them. And I'll tell you, that's the biggest difference. Like in China, like if you're a startup and you don't get government support, and you and and the government's blessing on what you're doing, it's really hard, you know. And if you get their support, wow, the resources at, at your disposal, it's you know, it depends on your relationship at the end of the day, but there can be a, a it can make an enormous difference in the outcome of your startup. So, um, especially at a young, really at any stage in China, we can see this at any stage, having good relationships with the government is extremely important. So, I I'm not, I know a lot of Chinese government officials, but I'm not that I'm not on the ground there. Like you have to be on the ground, you know, going out to dinner with them week in and week out and doing, you know, all of that type of business networking to really leverage those relationships. And that's my partners. And that's what they do with our local entrepreneurs. So when they see a promising entrepreneur, boom, they're on top of it. Like they're helping that entrepreneur, making all the introductions, doing all that. And I come in as the foreigner and my job is to layer, give another perspective. So I talk about like how we do things in Silicon Valley, how we execute, you know, how we scale our companies, what, you know, how we evaluate business models, all these different things. And honestly, when I'm engaging with Chinese entrepreneurs, it's not that different than when I am engaging with entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley who tend to be from all over the world. Like we have entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley from everywhere, China, Europe, you know, Africa, you name it, the Middle East. We, I have entrepreneurs in founder space from all those countries, as well as from the US. And entrepreneurs tend to have the same fundamental questions because, you know, at the end of the day, it, launching a company is providing value to the customer and figuring out, you know, where you fit and what you can do, you know, where is the demand, that pent up demand for you, for a product or service that's not being met out there that you can go in and supply. And that whole process isn't that different in different markets. The big difference in China is, you know, how you relate to the entire system, but that's not something that I'm, you know, that's something my local partners would navigate with the startups. But what I'm, doing is more fundamental. It's like, does your business model work? Like, does this make sense? You know, what are your, you know, I've been with entrepreneurs and I'm like, always like they're, they want to know if their idea is good. And I'm saying, don't ask me, let's go out to your customers and ask them. Like they're the ones who are going to be telling you, I could tell you my opinion, but at the end, it's just one opinion. And if I'm not your user, it's not the best opinion you're getting. So in that respect, um, uh, Chinese entrepreneurs are just dealing with the same issues uh, that U.S. entrepreneurs would deal with at a fundamental level. But then, of course, when you take your product to market, when you do marketing, when you do your launch, uh, it's a very different ecosystem. So you're it's a it's it's entirely different, and and you have to navigate that. And honestly, the entrepreneurs in China they know that stuff. They know how to do that. So what they're looking at when I engage them with is 
you know, what do you see in my business and what advice can you give me that nobody else around me is giving? So well said. So well said. That's so important. You talk about the, those support systems. And I, I want to ask you real quick about another support system. And, and that is maybe the the surrounding support systems of the available resources of software startup programs or investors, mentors. I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on the family dynamic and the supportiveness within China. Now, we we know that, you know, for a long time there was the single child policy, which meant that you you kind of had a at a six to one dynamic. You had your two parents and then you had their each of their parents creating kind of six elder statesmen uh, of, of the family, all kind of focused on that that one child. And if I look back circa 2010, I had to, to deal with that a lot. Um, I don't think a lot of family, uh, you know, at least immediate families were, were that enthusiastic about the young, their young people becoming entrepreneurs, nor was it easy to actually find mentors because when you found a great startup, you kind of hid them away. Some of the top angel investors in China would say, why would I give away my expertise and my intelligence and my experience for free. Uh, and so that, you know, and I know that that has, that has changed a lot, but I'm curious about your thoughts on what that landscape looks like today. China is changing a lot, like you said. So the younger generation is uh, much more westernized, especially those that are sea turtles that have gone abroad and come back. You know, they're very westernized. Uh, the family dynamics, you know, there's a lot of family pressure in China and a lot of family support. Like, so they're, you know, families are really behind them. Like you said, or just like in America, being an entrepreneur is really hard and parents tend to want their kids to be successful. So they try to guide them how they knew they, they, in their generation, what success was. And, but China, um, if you look at it today, parents tend to be pretty supportive of being a, an entrepreneur. It's a big part of the culture, right? The culture has uh, really focused on entrepreneurship for the past decade. And even before that, you know, the remaking of China. So there's this, so being an entrepreneur in China is pretty well accepted, except of course, you know, if you're a parent and the kid can go work for a foreign multinational like Microsoft or Chinese company like Huawei, those are good jobs. So uh, there's always, and it depends on the parent and what they want, depends on the, the, the younger generation. What I see is the, the, it's, what for Chinese people, when I relate to them, I really connect well with the younger generation. So it's super easy for me uh, to understand where they're coming from, you know, how they're thinking, especially ones that have lived abroad or worked in foreign multinationals. So easy to communicate. And, you know, a lot of a lot of doing business in China is really interesting because there's a whole drinking culture and uh, going out, you know, to these big dinners and drinking baiju and all this stuff. And I had to do that, especially with government officials. And that's something I'm not very good at. I'm not a big drinker. I, you know, don't even like to drink that much. Really a challenge. But when I'm with the younger generation, like they, you know, they're cool. They're like, whatever, you know, you're going out with them. You can have coffee, you can drink, you don't have to drink. It's more westernized in that sense. So um, my, some of the biggest cultural differences I've seen with China and the U.S. are with female entrepreneurs. So 
female entrepreneurs, they're still being pressured, especially by their family to get married by 28, you know, some eight, you know, before they're 30, uh, the, the parents and the grandparents, and they all pushing on them to get married makes it really hard for female entrepreneurs. It, it, a lot of, and, and once they're married, the husband has expectations. It's a much more patriarchal society still. And I think it's become even more patriarchal, you know, recently. Like there's even more pressure on women uh, to conform, to have, you know, focus on the family, focus on having kids. And uh, for female entrepreneurs, I talk to a lot of them and it's a big challenge for them, you know, because being an entrepreneur in China is hard. Like I said, you have entrepreneurs work all the time. And, you know, if they're working all the time, uh, it's very hard to have the relationships that would lead to marriage. And it's far to find, a, you know, a, a partner, especially if you're a woman, to find a husband who would accept you working that hard. And then, would the, you know, what about kids when they come into the equation? So the female entrepreneurs that succeed in China, they tend to be exceptional. But uh, because a lot of them who could succeed just get squeezed out by all these pressures on them uh, from society and from their family units. It's very, uh, you know, people in the United States and the Western world don't quite understand what it's like in China until you've been there. Oh, 100%. You have to go there to, to truly understand it. I want to get to the five forces that change everything. One of the one of the books, one of the books you released this year. But first, before I get there, as someone who has been to China a lot and and has a good understanding of what it takes to succeed there, I'm curious what you think about cross border. So especially when it takes for startups or founders, for entrepreneurs in the West who might want to take their company into that market or even vice versa. I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts about what it's like for Western startups entering China and, and some of those experiences you might have had or helping China startups go outside of China. So for Western companies entering China, I've had a lot of experience with this, my own company, for example, but I've helped a lot of other entrepreneurs from you know Europe, South Korea, United States, Canada, all over uh, enter the China market. And entering the China market is tough. Like it's it's hard because, it, again, it's an entirely different ecosystem. And then you layer on top of that, it, it's an entirely different culture. And it's a culture that is thousands of years old. And it's a culture built on relationships, relationships with the family, relationships with the community, relationships with uh, authority figures and government and business. And you're coming from the outside and you're at a disadvantage in all these areas. Like you don't know anything. So really the best positioned entrepreneurs to enter China are those who have lived abroad, maybe even uh, were raised abroad, but they're still Chinese. And so they grew up Chinese. They speak fluent Chinese. They understand China, but uh, they also understand the West. And when they bring their companies into China, uh, they tend to be able to navigate it pretty well. If 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 the person is not doesn't have a, you know that that Chinese uh, ancestry and culture, uh, then uh, the bar is pretty high. And I tell them, you know, if you're really smart, you will uh, find someone you can really trust 
uh, to partner with in launching your business in China that is, that is, that is Chinese that can help you navigate this and that understands relationships has relationships um, knows how business is actually done in China and these are so important because China you know we you sign a contract but the contract is really just a starting point. It's not like the West. We think we're going to stick to the contract when we sign a contract. In China, from my experience with everybody, it's like the China kind of sets out the rules that you're beginning by, but situations change. And then the contract will, if it doesn't fit in the contract, they'll, they'll just override it. <laughs> they'll, they'll change what they're doing. And for a lot of Westerners, this is really disconcerting. Whereas for Chinese, they understand it's not about what you wrote on the paper. It's about your relationship to them. And it's not just about your relationship to one person in China, the person you're doing business with, but it's your relationship to all the other people in that person's network. So are you connected with their family? Are you connected with their uh, their colleagues in business? Are you connected with the government that they do business with? If you have all these relationships in common, then you can usually work out anything. If you don't, if you're an isolated person, then you're, you know, they, there's not much cost for them to just back out of a deal or totally change it. Like, that's just normal. You don't have the relationships. You're not really in their group. Even if you think you connected with them one-on-one -on -one really well, in China, that doesn't matter. It's a one, it's a many-to-many -many, uh, connections that actually make the difference. So, so foreigners going in there, you don't do this. A big mistake they often make is they try to go too fast without getting on the right partners first, which is really you need to take your time and be very careful and understanding the landscape well. And all the, you know, I went very slow for what we were doing and I took low risk every time I signed a deal. I just upped the risk a tiny bit, but I uh, had most of the risk waited on my partner's side because I knew I didn't understand what I didn't understand. It, it, with with foreign companies coming in there, I say, number one, you're going to get approached to do a joint venture from dozens of people like but joint ventures. You don't know what you're getting into when you get a Chinese partner in a joint venture. They could be great, but they could also literally suck all the value out of what you're doing and you return you with nothing but a headache because the joint the joint venture, they may actually suck the value out of side deals they're doing with your joint venture and run up debts and things like that. I've heard these horror stories, you know, from, from foreigners entering China. And then they're stuck with this joint venture, which is just a liability and hasn't produced anything and all the value that other person has taken. So this is why I generally say get a partner you can really trust who's bicultural, who's in there with you, your co-founder, you got you guys are like bonded, like you inseparable. And then you set up a wholly owned foreign company in China that you run. And out of that, you start to do deals uh, in China. It's a better way to go. Um, if, you know, with intellectual property, like anywhere in the world, you have to be careful. If you have proprietary technology and stuff, you have to be careful how that's handled. And there's the rules are always changing. It's always in negotiation and in flux. But you should make sure you have people in China who really understand the intellectual property laws, what you can do, what you can't do, where your technology should reside, how you should um, license it out to people or allow people access to it in different developer groups. You, all these things, getting trusted people 
on the ground in China, lawyers, people who know the financial system, people who know uh, the relations with the government that they can help you with. These things are essential and they take time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more and I couldn't have said it better myself. Let's move on to talking about, again, like I said in joke, one of the books you released this year, because you also released a book called Surviving a Startup. But the one that I do want to talk about a little bit more right now, if you don't mind, is The Five Forces That Change Everything. I'd like to ask you to please introduce that book. Tell us about the inspiration about it. Tell us what it's about. And then maybe explain how China factors into that book. Sure. I'll do that. So I'm happy to say the five forces that change everything just launched in China, literally just launched. It's launching right now, launched a little ahead in the US. And I, you know, it's getting a lot of uh, excitement around it. Um, This book is about how technology will transform the world and society and our lives. And right now, the five forces are the five big areas of technological change that we see happening. One is mass convergence. That's how we're all connected to each other. Like the internet is a great example. What comes after the internet? You know, how, you know, with augmented reality, metaverse, virtual reality, brain computer interfaces, how will this change our connection to each other? Next one, bioconvergence. The convergence of biology and technology gene editing, gene therapies, you know, biohacking where people put chips and things in their body, all of this. Where is that going to take the world? Then there is, the next one is human expansionism. And by human expansionism, I mean our push outward into space and our push inward down into the nano world of nanobots and quantum computing and all of this. And where is that leading humanity? Everything from Elon Musk going to Mars and all these space programs down to how will quantum computers fundamentally change the landscape for everything from encryption to research, advanced research and understanding the world to new materials to little robots, you know, populating our bodies and actually curing cancer and things like that. After that comes the automation of the world. So a deep automation. So we are automating everything, everything that can be automated. We are automating literally because we see the results ever since the industrial revolution where we started mass production we have been automating society but with computers and the internet and iot robotics artificial intelligence and big data it's taking it to a whole nother level what does that mean where are we headed with our workforce what 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 decisions and what jobs will be taken over by ai how will that impact our lives how will that impact industries and then the final one is super intelligence. That is as we, and this goes out into the future and basically brings everything together. As we build AI, robots, our machines that are capable of thinking at the level human beings are, where does that take us? You know, what does it mean to have a computer that you cannot distinguish from a human being? And that's coming. It's called artificial general intelligence. It's not here yet. All we have is artificial narrow intelligence, meaning we can build self-driving cars and they can take us amazingly from point A to point B without getting in an accident, much better than a human. However, they have no concept what a city is, no concept about us as human beings, no concept, you know, they just don't understand the world. They just do one thing extremely well. 
What happens when we start to have computers that are actually cognizant of the world around them and can make decisions that appear as if they are conscious? And the question is, we'll never know if they're conscious. Like we will never know if, a, if an artificial intelligent robot is is conscious in the way we are conscious. But what I can guarantee you is at some point in time in the future, we will have a robot that will act and and perform in every way like a human being and may even look like us with facial expressions and everything else. So they're indistinguishable from a human. That will exist. And then how will that impact our lives? Will we take them on as mates, coworkers? Will they become so smart, potentially even exponentially smart, orders of magnitude smarter than humans. And what would that mean for us? So all those questions I pose in the book, and then I dive deep on kind of the social implications, cultural implications, what what will happen and the decisions, the fundamental decisions we need to make to actually steer on the correct path. Amazing. And before we leave, I I, want to, I'm going to ask you another question to deep dive into the AI. And I have a quote that I want to I want you to comment on. But first, the book, where can people get the book today? Okay, so you can get all my books at founderspace.com. And you can find me there. So just go to founderspace.com. Our incubators there, you can submit your business plans for funding to join our accelerator. Tons of content there, videos, my podcast, all sorts of stuff. But yeah, just go to founderspace.com. All my books are there. And what's the name of your podcast? Oh, my podcast is Founderspace mentors and masters. So it's a, it's our community of mentors and experts and, and how they, the advice they would give to startup founders. That quote that I was talking about relating to the conversation around AI. And I like what you said about a, you know, general intelligence versus narrow intelligence. I, you know, a car can drive itself. It can probably even teach itself how to become a better driver, but it can't fry an egg. Uh, and nor would it be able to learn something without somebody teaching it first. So I I really appreciate what you said there. This quote, I'm going to throw this at you. China will win the battle for AI supremacy because they have more data available at their disposal. So their machines can learn quicker and more effectively. Do you agree with that sentiment? Why or why not? Does it even matter? Yeah, so that's a very uh, interesting quote, uh, probably from Lee Kai-Fu or somebody like that. Um, And... I would say uh, data is really important. Uh, you know, a, it is the fuel for AI. But what you have to understand is it's also the quality of the data. You know, what in uh, different countries have different data about different things. So you could say with absolute certainty that given the number of engineers in China, uh, given the, the massive amount of data they're collecting, that China, the AI will be Chinese AI will be able to will be far superior to Western AI in China because all the data is Chinese based. Will that data translate to our cultures, our societies, how we do things? Not all of it. And there's also lots of data that isn't just based on human interactions because China has a big population. So that's why they're extrapolating that you get more data, but you don't get more data just from a big population. You get data from putting uh robots, uh, IOT devices in the ocean, in the air, in the wilderness, up into space. There's data from all sorts of things, from transactions on different markets, like the, you know, the Western stock markets and things like that. We have access to lots of data that the, in China they don't have. So will their AIs be su- superior to our AIs? Well, I would say no. 
they will be different because they have different AIs and they will be put to different tasks. Now, there will be some that will compete with ours in the Western world, and we're going to see how this plays out. So nobody really knows. And nobody knows where the big breakthroughs will come through in artificial general intelligence. So right now we have machine learning and all of this, but you know, companies like OpenAI with Microsoft backing them and lots of other companies experimenting, any of those could make a, a quantum breakthrough in and the performance of AI and what AI can do. And it won't necessarily happen in China. Now that said, China is a big contender. We, you know, the West, the West has to wake up and, and I think they've woken up recently and understand that China is doing extremely well, has a lot of talent there in very well educated talent and a lot of resources. And they are going to be producing some of the best technology in the future. But that doesn't mean it's better. It will it, it will be it, I would say their technology in certain areas will be superior to ours in other areas. We're still way ahead in certain sectors and it's going to be a push and a pull. And 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 what we shouldn't be thinking of is it's a winner take all world like where, you know, if China is successful, the West loses or if the West is successful, China loses. That to me is wrong headed thought that le leads to outcomes that are antagonistic instead of us actually seeing, look, we're all on this planet together. We have to figure out how to get along. We have to figure out how to solve bigger problems that don't even that cross borders like climate change, like hunger, things like that. We should be working. We should be focusing on those and, and not just focusing on, you know, competition and being adversarial that won't get the best results in the end. And it inspires me to ask maybe a rather open-ended question. I want to open this up to maybe your your favorite piece of advice when it comes to understanding China, doing business in China, lowering your threat level when it comes to thinking about China. I'm curious even if you wanted to go in the direction of what do you really hope from the future relationship between China and the U.S. even specifically? I, I just want to kind of open it up and, and let you just, you know, almost as a final word, what would you like to say to, your, to our audience about China in general? So in general, I think China is an amazing company, a uh, country <laughs> with incredible people. You know, some I made relationships in China where the, I have some of my best friends now in China and they I trust them implicitly. Like I would give them access to all my bank accounts and I know nothing would ever happen because they are just such amazing people. and We have such great relationships. Now, when it comes to the bigger picture, like economics and how how we cooperate and how we work together, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on both sides. So both sides, uh, you know, when things change, when uh, when the balance of power shifts, which has happened and, and China has grown up, it's now a big boy on the stage and it has, you, you know, economic power, military power, uh, political power, all of these things, just like the United States does. We are the giants and where China and the United States go for better or worse, the world goes like so whatever our two countries decide is going to be defining the future of our planet. And if uh, we can figure out how to get along, how to reduce 
uh, friction between the countries and create a more an environment of trust. And I think that's one of the areas, both in business and everything else, trust makes things happen. Trust, you know, you have good business relationships because of trust. You end up winning because you trust your team, because you trust your partners, because you trust the system you're working in. We have to make this work on a global level for trade, uh, for uh, foreign relations, for commerce and and economics, all these different things require a degree of trust, a degree of mutuality. So where both sides are gaining something from the relationship, if either side is trying to take it all at the expense of the other, it's not going to work. And I hope uh, we can focus on building trust and mutually beneficial relationships as opposed to what can I get at your expense? Thank you very much for everything you just said. I completely agree. And I think it's I think it's a very valuable sentiment. And I hope that that really resonates and permeates uh, throughout our audience. That is really a lot of the essence of what this podcast aims to do. So thank you very, very much for that. That was very eloquently put. Now, lastly, a couple of guest recommendations, if you don't mind, sir. I would like to know who you think, maybe even thinking outside of your own realm of knowledge and vertical that you're so well versed in, who are a couple of people that you can kind of think of that you think you might actually be interested to listen to on a podcast such as this? So I'm going to make two recommendations. So one is Rebecca Fannin. If you haven't had her on, you asked, she wrote Tech Titans we have. of China. Yeah, we oh. actually had her on maybe a year ago. Yeah, it, it's been a while. It, hey, might be worth catching up with her again. Yeah, she's a good friend and, and I meet her in the US and China and she is fantastic. So she is one I would definitely recommend. Um, another is the founder of Ad China, which got acquired by Alibaba, uh, Peter Cheng. And he is... Well, he he's amazing. So he uh, did a lot of business startups in Silicon Valley, went back to China, was very successful in China with his startups. Now he runs a venture fund in China, a very different type of venture fund. Really fascinating guy. Love to connect you with him. Perfect. Yeah, we'll definitely take you up on that. Uh, good reminder for anybody listening, you know, based on Steve's recommendation as well. Rebecca Fan and go back, find her episode. Uh, I don't have it right in front of me right now, but definitely worth a listen. She is one of the most knowledgeable people on China as well. Uh, she's also a good friend of Kaifu Lee. Uh, and we talk a lot about AI and stuff like that uh, as well. So um, definitely good reminder there for people who want to go back and listen to that one. And uh, yeah, we will definitely take you up on that opportunity to get introduced, I think that uh, uh, that sounds really interesting. You even teased us a little bit with like a very different type of, of fund in the way that they act. So uh, it would be very curious for us to figure out what that is exactly. So anyway, Steve Hoffman, CEO of Founderspace and author of Make Elephants Fly, The Five Forces That Change Everything and Surviving a Startup that both came, those last two both came out this year. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.